Well, it's a special pleasure to be with you this evening. I want to thank the elders for the invitation to join you for such a series as this. And I want to say just a few words of introduction, and then I need to get to the lesson at hand because I have lots to say and not a lot of time to say it. Thank you for coming and being a part of this. I wanted to say a word of commendation because the elders have had some foresight in asking me to come because this is a topic that's needed. We live in a time when our world is being bombarded with scientific materialism. That worldview is dominating in a lot of places, and our children are having to face it. I have spent my life preparing to do the kind of things I'm doing now. And if I may be personal for just a moment, I retired from my presidency last June, and I've had the best time since then getting to dig in with some depth into the sciences again and actually have study time, concentrated study time. So I'm going to share some of that with you during this series this weekend. Thank you for coming to join us toward that end. So let's get right at it. Thank you for being here. Christianity and science, conflict or coherence. I took that title directly from this book. You can see the title. It's exactly that title. This is a little book by Dr. Henry Schaefer. He's a chemist, worldwide respected, published author, and uh, just genuine man, a strong believer in God. And the purpose of this text was to kind of summarize lectures he's done at campuses all over this world. And one of the things that he did in the back of the book was list all the lectures he's ever done on this topic and where he did it. And it's at Harvard and Yale and all the other big schools and internationally. And he is always asked by students, can you be a Christian and be a scientist? And many of them think that's ridiculous. You can't do that because they don't go together. So his purpose in this text was to demonstrate that throughout the centuries there have been many, many, many believers in God who are well-respected and highly intelligent scientists. And so I'm going to touch the hem of the garment tonight. You want to read more detail, you get this little book. And you'll thoroughly enjoy it. I spent a good bit of time this afternoon looking at it again. This is a book worth reading six or seven times at least. So, Christianity and science. Conflict or coherence. Let's start this way. We're meeting tonight in a church building. So my typical way to deal with this when we're in a church building is to start by looking at the Bible. I think that's appropriate. So I'm going to turn to Psalm 19. Would you do that with me? The Bible is the book on which Christianity is founded, isn't it? Absolutely. Amen is a good answer to that. And so in the Old Testament of the Bible, Psalm the 19th chapter clearly teaches that looking at the natural world and believing in God ought to combine together. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. That passage teaches that you can examine the natural world and see God. Thank you. 
I wouldn't spend longer on it, but I want to get to some other things. There's a second passage in the New Testament of the Bible in Romans chapter 20. And I will tell you, these two passages provide our biblical basis for the discussion we're having this weekend. And they support your elders' decision to have such a series. Because the Bible supports what I'm going to do. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What does that passage say? You can see God who can't be seen. God is invisible. You cannot directly observe God. But you can see him by examining things that are made. You can even know from that that he must be something amazing, powerful, and that he must not be a part of this natural world. He's divine. And he's eternally powerful. Those things you can learn from examining the natural world. So says Romans 1 verse 20. So the Bible teaches in both of those places that studying the natural world should lead one to the conviction that there must be a God. To become a believer, in other words. And that's the basis for what we're doing this in a church building for. Because I suspect most everybody in this audience are believers in God already. And I'm glad that you are. If you're here tonight and you're not a believer in God or you're listening to this series as it's being recorded, and isn't it amazing these days that you can speak knowing you're not just speaking to the current audience. But if you're listening and you're not a believer, I would say to you, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you will open your minds and your hearts to the reality of what I'm going to say. And please don't believe me. I want you to examine what I'm saying for yourself. And I'm going to provide a bibliography, I already have, for you to have if you want it, of all the books I refer to, and anything else you want to know where I got it, because none of this is original, you're welcome to have it, and so you can look for yourself. But this book, which I believe is the Word of God, testifies that God has another book, the book of the natural world, that also testifies of his existence. So for the rest of our time this evening and throughout the two lectures tomorrow, I will not be speaking from this book. So I'm going to set it right there. It's still there and I believe in it and I love to preach from it. But tonight and tomorrow, I want to talk to you from God's other book, the book of the natural world. So don't get upset about that if you're a Bible believer. We're not neglecting the word of God, we're looking at other words from God that come to us from the natural world. So the observation of nature reveals God. That's what science is about, observation of the natural world. And the argument we're going to make from all of that is the argument from design. Romans 1 says, if you examine things that are made, they testify to a grand, eternally powerful maker which we call God. So there's the biblical basis for what we're about to do. So I'm going to call you my class.
because this is a lecture. Are you ready, class, for some science? Good. I hope so. And I hope it's all right by the elders. I forgot to ask you ahead of time if we get a little bit of audience interaction. I'm not going to call on individuals, but I may want some verbal answers to some of my questions because nothing, if nothing else, it keeps you awake. <laughs> and I wanted to let you know I don't allow sleeping, and I can see you. I've been doing this a long time. So if this audience starts getting sleepy and you can believe that's happened to me before, I have a solution, and you'll see if you do it. I don't throw things. Many of the key scientists in the age of enlightenment, the 16 to 1800s, the Renaissance, you call it, were strong believers in God and in Jesus Christ and in the Bible. During this period of time of history in the Western world, when the sciences were being developed, the great majority of those who had a significant role to play in the development of the sciences were strong believers in God. I'm going to illustrate that to you now. But that is a fact. And Dr. Schaefer points out a whole lot more than I'm going to get to talk about. One famous one is Johannes Kepler, 1571 to 1630. Probably, and let me just see a show of hands, how many in this audience know anything about Johannes Kepler? Like five. And I'm not surprised because Johannes Kepler is not a very well-known scientist, but he was one of the most brilliant, amazing scientists ever. He was an astronomer and a strong believer in God during a time when there was conflict between the scientists who were discovering more and more new things about the world and the Roman Catholic Church, which had the dominating force in the Western world at that time. So there was some conflict, all right. But these fellows who were, they were claiming were part of the problem were strong believers in God and openly said so. So I'm going to read you some quotes from Johannes Kepler. I, he says of himself, was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Since we astronomers are the priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else of the glory of God. Don't you love that? So said Johannes Kepler. And by the way, he's given credit for three of the great laws of planetary motion. And folks, he lived back in the days when you didn't have much stuff to observe the planets. And he did calculations that are unbelievable. If you had time, I'd tell you the math. He used logarithms. No calculators, kids. No computers. He did it the old-fashioned way. And I learned amazing things about the planets and their motion. I'll just give you one. One of his laws was that the planetary motions around the sun are not in a circular form, which is what the church was teaching, but rather elliptical. And the sun was at one of the foci of the ellipse rather than in the center of a circle. Well, that was hard to discover in those days. Long story behind that. But that was just one of three famous planetary laws. But Johannes Kepler, folks, was a strong believer in God. So here's another good quote from him. The chief aim of all investigation of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God. 
and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. Now, as an old math teacher, I love that. Because if you can express what you've observed about the natural world mathematically, you've never gotten to a higher plane. Because I believe God wrote in the language of math as well. And I taught calculus for about 35 years. It's only the most important class you will ever take other than the Bible. And especially if you're an engineer science type guy. Because it's foundational to everything else. And the study of the calculus is a study of infinity. And if that's not thinking God's thoughts after him, I don't know what is. And these guys had not yet uncovered the calculus yet. I love Johannes Kepler as an example of one of those ancient guys. And so a couple of good quotes from him. But by the way, there's lots more for Johannes Kepler. One of which was, I believe only and alone in the service of Jesus Christ and in him is all refuge and solace. Someone claim these guys were deists. No, they were believers in the Bible. And they were not ashamed to say so. And here's Isaac Newton. Now, I'll ask you to raise your hand again. How many of you have heard of Isaac Newton? Well, I hope everybody. He's only the most important scientist that ever lived. In fact, many people, including Dr. Schaefer and myself, would say that he's the greatest scientist of all time. Let me show you why. He is the one that independently invented the calculus. I'm a little prejudiced. But folks, there was a great uh, complex issue that was never resolved. And that is, how do you move from one place to another? Zeno's famous paradox was you can't move from here to there. And I'll take just a minute here, just for fun. Motion from here to there is either finitely divisible or it's infinitely divisible. Let's take those two options. If it's finitely divisible, that means you can divide it up into a count, countable number of times. Well, if that's the case, then if any one of those divisions, it's not moving, is it? Because if it is, you can divide it again. Are you with me so far? So if it's finitely divisible, you can't get there because at all the dividing points, you're not moving. What if it's infinitely divisible? Okay, if that's the case, then you start moving over here. You can move halfway, right? And then you can move half of that, and then half of that, and half of that forever, and you never get there. Therefore, motion is impossible. That's Zeno's paradox. Well, it was the Greek Zeno who thought of that in hundreds of odd years before Christ. That problem had not been resolved till Newton came along. And what does it say up there? 1642 to 1727. And am I going to explain to you how the calculus resolved that problem? No, I am not. It is only the entirety of the calculus. But the basic idea is this. There's a limit. The limit concept solved those problems. So if you were in my calculus class, for the first six weeks, we do nothing but to help you understand the limit and make you learn how to define it carefully, and everything from then on is proved by that. And you understand it, or you don't get out of my class. Well, he independently invented it. Most people have trouble understanding it.
much less inventing it. Secondly, he formulated the classical laws of motion. Newton is single-handedly credited with describing motion, and it was requiring the calculus to do so. Can I give just one little illustration again? You're, something's moving. At the instant it passes right in front of you, what's its velocity? At the instant it passes, velocity is the change in distance over the change in time, right? At the instant it passes you, what's the change in time? Zero. What's division by zero, class? You can't divide by zero. So it's undefined. So what is the instantaneous velocity of a particle? I'll leave that for you to struggle with. But the calculus resolved that problem, thanks to Newton. He also invented and applied the universal laws of gravitation, class. Did Newton ever figure out what gravity was? No. But he described it mathematically. And that's as far as you can get. And he described the laws that associate with gravity, even though nobody to this day knows what gravity is. Can I tell you how mysterious that is? If this object has mass and this object has mass, they have an attraction for one another. It's called gravity. But what is that? I can tell you Newton was accused of dealing with demonic and, and, and mystical things, trying to describe gravity. You're talking that these two bodies aren't touching each other and they somehow influence one another? What is it, the Holy Spirit? It's mystical. He never knew what it was, and neither do we, but we know how to use it because it's been described mathematically thanks to this man. And I'm waxing too much on this, but here's three more. He built the first practical reflecting telescope. He pioneered the studies of light and optics, which only changed everything. And he theoretically determined the speed of sound. And that's just a small list of this brilliant person. Now I want you to listen to this man talk. And he's talking here about our solar system. Though these bodies may indeed continue in their orbits by the mere laws of gravity, yet they could by no means have at first derived the regular position of the orbits themselves from these laws. Thus, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. He said in the general scolium of the Principia, his most important work. And he went on to say many other things that I don't have time to quote for you tonight. The man was a strong and committed believer in God, in the Bible, and that Jesus was the Son of God. And he was not ashamed to say it. Did blind chance know that there was light? And what was its refraction? And fit the eyes of all creatures after the most curious manner to make use of it? These and such like considerations always have and ever will prevail with mankind to believe that there is a being who made all things and has all things in his power and who is therefore to be feared. And you see the three dots there? I'm leaving out a whole bunch of stuff in between. And then he says, we are therefore to acknowledge one God, 
infinite and eternal. And he goes on to a whole bunch of other characteristics, the creator of all things. And then he goes on to say, and we need to love him, pray to him, obey him, believe in him. Isaac Newton. And if you were taking a college curriculum in the 1800s class, you would be taking this course called Natural Theology. It's a course that studied the evidences of the existence and the attributes of the deity collected from the appearances of nature. Natural Theology was a study of the evidence of God in nature, and the whole course was full of that. Much more could be said about that, but the beginning of his famous work, William Paley's book, had the famous watchmaker argument. And you've all heard it probably. If you were walking along a heath in England, kicked over a rock and there was a watch, you probably wouldn't say it's probably been lying there forever. You would probably would say somebody made that after you examined it. Somebody made this. This does not come about by natural causes. Wouldn't you, class? That's how he started that book. And then he proceeded to say that in nature, there are so many other things we can observe carefully that are much more complex than any watch you might kick over. And they testify to a grand and glorious maker. Charles Darwin took this class. And he went into the study to be a preacher until he left on that infamous trip around the world on the HMS Beagle as a naturalist and came back with serious doubts as to whether the species were all created by God independently of one another. And he began to think, no, they could have come about without God. But he started with this, as did every other college student back in those days. So, I gave you a handout tonight. I hope all of you got it. Get it out, please, and look at it. I'm not going to take much time on it tonight. That's why I gave you a handout. But I wanted you to know that many would argue that science and the development of science occurred first in an environment dominated by a Christian's worldview. And they would argue that it would not have happened had it not been for the influence of Christianity. So is there conflict or coherence? Folks, Christians are the ones that brought about science in the first place. I'm talking in the broad sense of that word. Believers in God... So no, you don't think, have to think there's conflict there. And this particular author, Dr. Schaefer, quotes a, a um, professor friend of his. And I'll just look on page 24 and 25 of this book because you've got it written right there. He gives five things that he says testify why Christianity kind of led to modern-day science. If Christianity is true, then the universe is real, not illusory. And this is coming from his friend, Dr. Wesley Allen. I read after him a lot this afternoon. Fascinating character. Another strong believer. Chemistry professor at the University of Georgia. If Christianity is true, the universe is real, not illusory. The universe is thus the product of a God whose character is immutable. That's at variance with pantheism because in pantheism, you necessarily you might not know what's happening next to this universe. You can't count on it. If God made it, you can count on it. 
Second, if Christianity is true, the universe being divinely created is of inherent value and thus worthy of study. And I'm not going to read the rest of them, but there's a five key things that help Christianity bring about science. I think they're right for you to mull over. But class, by the end of the 20th century, how did we get to this place? I'm going to quote from you now, or for you now, from Richard Dawkins, born in 1941 and still alive today. He is the British evolutionary biologist and author, appointed professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford. Widely known. His primary job right now, according to Oxford, is to teach you people who don't know much about science what science is all about. And may I say to you, before I read some of his comments, if you listen to Richard Dawkins and you follow his advice, you'll become an atheist. And I'm not making that up. In his book, The Selfish Gene, he says, Faith, which all of you believers have, is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. It is a process of non-thinking. So what Dr. Dawkins says about me, class, because I'm a believer, is that I don't even know how to think. And that I just have this faith that's like, okay, I believe it. That's as far from the truth as anything could be. And shame on him for saying such a thing. This professor of public understanding of the sciences. But the selfish gene is one of his books. Another one is called The God Delusion in 2006. If this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Because he believes that you folks who believe in God are deluded. In fact, it gets worse than that. He says, God is a delusion. A psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. Thank you, Richard Dawkins. That is hateful class. And may I just add a word here. I so strongly disagree with Richard Dawkins that I get a little feisty sometimes and maybe even yell because it infuriates me that somebody who's supposed to be letting the public know about the sciences would say something so incendiary as what I just read to you. It's a disgrace. And I would say that to his face. I don't want to do the same thing. If someone is not a believer, I want to be respectful of that person because I believe he's made in the image of God and deserves respect, as do I, by the way. And what I just read to you is not respectful at all. God is made by some mad, deluded lunatic. That's not all Richard Dawkins says. Some of his things are okay, but a lot of things are hateful. How is it that we come to Carl Sagan in his series, The Cosmos, the most popular science series ever done on television, would say in his series in 1980, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. That was the opening statement 
of that supposed science series. May I say to you, class, that is not a scientific statement. There is no way science could tell you that the cosmos is all there ever was or ever will be. That is a statement of his faith. But they don't want faith. You believe we have the evidence. Wrong. We both have the same evidence. We believe a different way than you do. But Carl Sagan and his ilk believe the only solution is to say the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, or all there ever will be. So how did we get there from Kepler, Galileo, and Newton? So I'm going to give you the fastest history lesson you've ever had. This is a brief summary. How did things change so radically in 200 years? It's almost unbelievable. Well, it didn't happen suddenly because it started way back in the 1700s with men like Pierre Simon de Laplace, who after he did his studies, and by the way, he thought he was the next Newton, and he's far from it. He said, nature with its matter, energy, and forces could produce and maintain our solar system. He didn't agree with Newton that we needed God to start it. No, it could do it by itself, according to him. There is no need, in his opinion, for a God hypothesis. And then Charles Lyell in the 17 and 1800s wrote a book on the principles of geology. He was trying to explain the former changes in the Earth's surface by reference to causes now known to be in operation. So the present is the key to the past. And he would argue you don't need anything to explain the past geological formations other than what you can observe today. So catastrophism was not the answer, like a universal flood. Just regular normal occurrences happening over millions and millions of years are sufficient. You don't need God for geological formations or anything else. And then came along Charles Darwin, who first published his book, The Origin of Species. Do you see the subheading there? By means of natural selection, the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Did you know that was the subtitle of his book? The preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Would that be a popular book today? Folks, there is no book in the history of mankind second to the Bible that has had more impact on humanity than that book. It's changed our whole view of the world, and it's become accepted by academia as the answer to how life got here and all the species of life, because his fundamental thesis was you don't need God to account for species of life that can come about by natural selection acting on natural variation over millions of years. So you don't need God for that either. And then along came O'Paran and Haldane in the early 1900s, late 1800s and early 1900s, and said you don't need God to produce life from the non-living matter either. Because they came up with a theory that things were different in the early earth, and in that different state, life could have been produced from non-life without God. And so over a period of 200 years, gradually, piece by piece, the necessity for God became less 
and less. And what came to be said is you believers in God better get over it. I heard it myself in college in the 60s and 70s because we're not going to need Him when we figured it all out. And what you believe in is the God of the gaps. Your ignorance is where you put God in. And may I say to you, class, at this beginning of this series of lectures, my position is not based on ignorance. It's based on the accumulation of a massive amount of information. And the more we learn, the more we need God, not less. And that's what I hope to get across. But these guys were leading us down the path. The more we learn, you don't need God for this. You don't need him for that. You don't need him for that. So that's what happened to the point class that in the United States of America and most places on earth you are not allowed to teach in public educational settings the position that there was a great creator. Newton would not be allowed to say what I read to you in any college without getting censored. Is that believable? That's where we are. I think I could win a debate class if the only answer, there's only one answer allowed, and the only other answer is excluded. That's where we are. That's not where we should be. So I say it's time to revisit the argument from design, and that's what this series is about. I want to revisit that argument. So today, and two times tomorrow, we're going to talk about the argument from design. And I'm going to ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you're my jury. I'm going to try to convince you that it's more reasonable to believe there was a grand designer than that some of the forces of physics acting upon natural, acted upon by natural selection could have produced what I'm about to tell you. And I'm going to ask you, which do you think is more reasonable? So you ready, class? I just finished my introduction. I'm going to introduce you next to a very famous author of our day. He's a creationist. When I was at Harvard University in 67, 68, working on a master's degree in science education with an emphasis in chemistry, I could find nothing written by creationists worth reading. You are blessed to live in the 21st century because there are hundreds of authors like Stephen Meyer who have written wonderful scientific treatises on all kinds of topics and show that it is very reasonable to believe in God. And Stephen Meyer is one of the best in my view. So he's written three books that I'd recommend to you. The first called Signature in the Cell is dealing with the DNA question and that's tomorrow, 3 o'clock. Don't miss it. And this book, I don't have that one with me, but Signature in the Cell is about this thick, but it's worth reading. His second book is Darwin's Doubt. Because Darwin, to the time he died, was really concerned about the fossil record. It didn't support his theory very well. And there's a place in the fossil record they call the Cambrian Explosion in which all kinds of new life forms come into existence and there's nothing before them to, lead to show how it led to that. And so he talks about that in this, and it's the origin of life problem. Great text. 
And then thirdly, he just wrote a recent text called The Return of the God Hypothesis. That's a takeoff on Laplace. The Return of the God Hypothesis. And in this book, he's saying, in the last 70 to 100 years, we've learned more about the way the world and the universe functions than in all the history of mankind together prior to that time. And what we've learned is the God hypothesis is the best answer. Using science. And he says there's basically three great discoveries that have been made in the last 70 to 80 years that undergird that position. The return of the God hypothesis. First, the universe, space, matter, and time has a beginning. I'm pausing because you didn't get that. Do you know how hateful that is to a, an atheist? An atheist wants to believe that matter is eternal. You don't need to explain it because it's always been here. Now we know very solidly from science, at least we believe with all our hearts. <laughs> and that's true of most all scientists now, that there was a beginning. They call it the Big Bang, which I have some questions about some of all of that. But the evidence for a beginning class is overwhelming. If there was a beginning, how to get started? You know that there's people sitting around in our time talking about how something came out of nothing and that there's perfectly natural to believe that? And I go, but that's what folks are talking about. It's a big old problem, and it's not my discussion for these three lessons. It's not my area in the first place. But I will tell you, it's very almost universally agreed upon. Time, space, and matter at one time didn't exist. By the way, does the Bible teach that? Yes. And it teaches that God created it by the breath of his mouth. It's more reasonable, class, to believe there was an intelligence who designed matter than that matter somehow came into existence from nothing and made up an intelligence. Isn't it? But secondly, what we've learned in the last 70 years is that our universe, our solar system, and the earth in particular are remarkably fine-tuned to support life on earth and have been since the beginning. Now, folks, that's not something we knew very well until the last 70 years. And the reason is well, let me give you the third one before I get to that one, because tonight I want to talk about that fine-tuning one and just a little bit about this third one. Even the simplest forms of life at the biochemical level contain massive amounts of digital information being used to produce and maintain an untold number of molecular machines under, and, and complex processes. Boy, did I lose you on that quote. Basically, it's saying what we've learned is down to the smallest things we can possibly observe there's so much complexity. And there's little machines doing all kinds of amazing things better than any human ever produced. And that's tomorrow evening. Don't you miss it. And those three things, says Meyer, should turn your head, atheists. 
and agnostics. Examine them for yourself. And how do you explain it? Do you know anything, class, that has information in it, complex information that ever came about with something intelligent bringing it about? And the answer to that is no, you don't. But somehow these unbelievers think that nature by itself produced intelligence and these amazingly intelligent things that we see all around us. And the more we learn, the worse it gets for them. So, I turn to a book by Paul Davies. Paul Davies is an evolutionist through and through. He's not a God believer. But he wrote a book called The Goldilocks Enigma. An enigma is a mystery, isn't it? The Goldilocks Enigma. Now, kids, y'all remember Goldilocks? Why did he call it the Goldilocks Enigma? Well, I'm going to tell you. Goldilocks went out into the woods, right, and got lost and finally entered a house. She didn't know who, right? And went in and sat down at a table. Adults, you remember this? And she sat down at one table and tried the porridge, didn't she? And it was too hot. So she scooted over and tried the next one, and it was too cold. So she tried the third one, and it was just right. So that answer you just gave me is the answer I want to hear. Just right. And so what'd she do? She ate it all up. And then she went to the bedroom. Oh, it's chairs next, wasn't it? And then she went to the bedroom. But each, ta- each case, one was to something, the other one was the opposite, and the other one was just right. So he's saying the Goldilocks enigma is this. Why is the universe just right for life? Why is that? Well, that's a tough question. Unless somebody designed it. One of the most significant facts, arguably the most significant fact about the universe, is that we are part of it. How'd we get here? Well, what Davies and a whole lot of others have learned is the fact that we're here testifies to a whole bunch of things being, that was terrible. They testify to a whole bunch of things being, that's much better because it ought to be emphasized. Everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it was designed for life. Well, why not believe that it was? Because we can't have that class. There's a professor at Harvard named Lee Wanton who said verbally and in a writing, we will not let God's foot in the door. Like I said, I can win an argument if you exclude the only other answer. But does the evidence support the idea that somebody's been messing with this? This didn't happen by natural causes. Yes, it does. When I was in college in the 1960s, scientists had discovered two characteristics of the cosmos that were fine-tuned to make physical life possible and some 8 to 10 of the solar system. This topic was just opening up for us. But I'll tell you what my professors were telling me. The more we learn, we're going to figure out how these things work this way and the less we're going to need God. Well, let me tell you what's happened. By the 2000s, we've learned over 38 characteristics of the cosmos are fine-tuned. 
to support life. And over 150 characteristics of the solar system. That's 188 different variables. Look at me, class. Everybody's eyes up here. Imagine a big machine that's got dials on it. And all of those dials, in order to have life, have to be set to the perfect setting. Are you with me? 188 dials. So you come here to this one. It has to be set just exactly right. This one has to be just exactly right. Not the same as that one, but exactly right. And you keep going to 188. Every one of them, if you move one of them, just a T9C little bit, it's not... Are you awake? If, may I say it again? If you move one of them, just a little T9C bit, it's not... And you wouldn't be here! Don't believe me. Paul Davies would tell you that the, there is no disagreement between the two sides on this. The question is, what do you do with it? 188 different, and there's more all the time. So I turn your attention now to an interesting text. J. Warner Wallace's little book called God's Crime Scene. Of all the books I'm going to recommend to you, particularly if you're not a science guy, is this one. You ought to start with this one. J. Warner Wallace was a cold case detective. He was born and raised into a family where his daddy was a detective. And his daddy was an atheist all his life. And so was J. Warner Wallace. But he became a believer from what he observed about the natural world. And he wrote this book with an effort to convert his own daddy. I understand it's not been successful yet. But it was his effort. And every chapter in this book is based on a court case that he helped solve. And it's fascinating. You'll love it. And it's written at a level where most all of you can understand it. And if you don't understand it, part, skip it. So, I'm going to read you a little piece of chapter 2. All right, class, are you ready? This is not a nighttime story. It's not to put you to sleep. The title of this chapter is Tampering with the Evidence. Helen knew something was wrong when her daughter Carrie failed to answer the door. It was a bright summer afternoon. Carrie said she'd be home, and her car was indeed parked in the driveway. Helen tried to peek in through the living room window, but the curtains were unusually drawn. Carrie never locked the back door, but when Helen walked into the backyard of the old house, she found the door locked and all the windows closed. That was not like Carrie... She usually left one badly worn rear window slightly ajar. Helen began to panic. She knew Todd and Carrie had a tumultuous marriage, one that included physical violence. Todd had moved out, but Helen still feared for her daughter's safety. The couple had a child named Lexi, but the violence had only intensified since her birth. And just last night, after Todd had threatened to kill Carrie... Carrie confided there'd been yet another fight. When Helen couldn't get Carrie to answer the door on this afternoon, she decided to call the police. And so they brought the police. 
when they tried, got in the front door, they had to get out because there was a gas smell in the house. So they brought in the hazmat team. And when they finally got upstairs to the bedroom through the smell of gas, they found Carrie and Lexi dead on the bedroom bed. The question was, class, here are two dead bodies inside a house. How'd that come about? Anytime there's a death, it's either natural, accidental, or somebody did it. And that's the question. So a good detective starts looking for circumstantial evidence. And it started piling up. Let me just list a few things that he started to find. There was a pocket door at the bottom of the stairwell. It was very hard to open. And by the way, she never closed it. When they finally got that thing open and went upstairs, the bedroom door was closed with a bunch of clothes piled in front of it. She never left dirty clothes around anywhere. When he looked at the gas jet, it was wide open upstairs and closed downstairs. The pilot light was out, but the gas valve was open. And when two days, they found out that two days prior to this lady and her daughter's death, Todd had been down to the electric, the gas company who would shut off the gas because they weren't paying their bills. And two days before they died, he had them start the gas again. And that's when they decided this is a murder. And I'll tell you the end of the story. Todd was convicted of first-degree murder of his own wife and baby on circumstantial evidence. Nobody ever saw it. No live witnesses. But he was convicted. And his point in this thing is he was convicted because the jury could not believe all the coincidences that happened without outside tampering Like our murder scene, there are foundational, regional, and locational conditions demanding explanations. The foundational laws of physics, the regional properties of our solar system, and the local, locational conditions of our planet resulted in our existence. You see, at the crime scene, there were two dead bodies they had to explain. In our case, there's a bunch of million live bodies that we need to explain. If circumstances had been just slightly different in Carrie's house, no one would have died that night. The conditions had to be for them to be dead. In a similar way, if circumstances in our real world were just slightly different, you wouldn't be here. The fact is we've learned they had to be And I want to share just a few of them with you. So you hang in there. In his book, Warner Wallace talks about a bunch of them. There are laws of nature. There are physical constants and ratios. There are properties of elements and chemicals that are foundational, much like Todd and, and uh, Carrie's terrible relationship. Wasn't that foundational? Well, all of these properties of the natural world are foundational. If they weren't there, you wouldn't be here. So he gives one or two here. 
The ratio of electrons to protons, both in numbers and in mass, is to be precariously balanced. If the value of this ratio deviated by more than 1 in 10 to the 37th, the universe as we know it would not exist. All right, I lost you. The ratio of electrons to protons is very finely tuned. It has to be, if you change it by 1 in 10 to the 37th, you wouldn't be here. Folks, you don't have any clue what that is. So he gives an example. Imagine covering the entire North American continent in dimes and stacking them till they reach the moon. That's 250,000 miles away. Now imagine stacking just as many dimes again on another one billion continents of the same size as North America. So you got a billion and one continents with dimes stacked to the moon. Got it? If you marked one of those dimes and hid it in the billions of piles you'd assemble, the odds of a blindfolded friend picking out the correct dime is approximately 1 in 10 to the 37th. The same level of precision required in the ratio of electrons to protons. Is that finely tuned, folks? And that's just one out of 188. Are you listening to me, jury? You mess with it that much, you wouldn't be here. Don't believe me. You go study the evidence for yourself. But we're just getting started. What about regional fine-tuning? Well, you've got to be in the right kind of galaxy. Did you know that? Not just any galaxy will do, class. There are three basic kinds of galaxies. They're irregular, and they're uh, globular, and then they're spiral. Well... What kind of galaxy does it take? You know we have a new telescope up in space called the James Webb Telescope that was put up there just last summer. So this is up-to-date stuff. And I've asked them to turn off all the lights for a little bit. Don't you go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the telescope itself. It's out sitting out there going around our planet. And it's outside the atmosphere, so it can take a lot better pictures. So what I'm about to show you is the first picture that was unveiled from the James Webb Telescope by our president on July the something, 20-something, this summer, last summer. And before we do that, everybody's eyes on me. If you took a grain of sand and held it out here at arm's length, the amount of the sky that that piece of sand would cover up is what this is a picture of I'm about to show you. So would you say that's a T-90 bit of the universe? If you held a piece of sand out here, the amount that's blocked of the universe behind that piece of sand is what this is a picture of. All right, let's get the rest of the lights off and then let me forward it. Lights off. What about these right here? Do I have to do that myself? Oh, okay. Over here? Up here? I don't see it. You come help me. I'm not responsible for lights. Thank you. Can you just wait a minute? Yeah, you <laughs> I may need help getting it back on. <laughs> All right, here we go. Class, everybody looking? Can you close those doors back there? It's too much light coming in. 
<laughs> See, I want you to be out in the desert where there isn't all the city lights because you can't see nothing. Anything. Is that incredible? That's called a galaxy cluster SMAX 0723, the James Webb Telescope, July the 12th, 2022. Now I want you to look at this. Remember I told you that's the amount subtended by one little grain of sand? Well, just look at all those globs. Look at this and that and that and that and that and that. And you think, aren't those amazing stars? No, class. All of those are galaxies, each of which probably has billions of stars in it. And you see that one right there? That's a spiral galaxy. But most of these galaxies are something else. They're either irregular or elliptical. There are very few spiral galaxies in the universe that we know of. But did you have any idea there's that much galaxies in one little spot? That's what we're uncovering. Okay, I need the lights back on before I fall off the stage. And now you see how little you see without the lights being off? So, what have we learned about galaxies? Well, first of all, the amount of spiral galaxies in the universe is less than 5%. Class, are you with me? That means 95% of the galaxies are excluded for a place that supports life, like our solar system. It's worse than that because our galaxy, which is the, what do you call it, the Milky Way galaxy, is a tightly wound spiral galaxy, which is probably less than 1% of all the galaxies. So would you say we're in a special place? And you know what an atheist would say? Well, isn't that an amazing coincidence? We just happen to be in the right kind of galaxy, and so therefore we can have living things. Well, okay, class, you're my jury. How many times is that going to work for you? How about 188 or more? The galaxy has to be? You think it's good enough just to be in that galaxy? No, class. You've got to be in the right place in the galaxy. Here's a spiral galaxy on its side. You see, this is the glob in the middle. If our solar system were right there, you wouldn't be here. You would have been smashed by the gravitational and electronic forces in a matter of microseconds. It wouldn't work. There are exactly two areas of our spiral galaxy where our solar system can exist as it is, in, as it is today. And here they are. Do you know where our sun is? Right there. Whoops. I've got to go back. Can you make me go back? The other way. There you go. Our sun is right there. Well, isn't that interesting coincidence that it just happens to be right in the galaxy where it needs to be in order to support life? Well, it's a fact. But it's not good enough just to be in the galaxy at the right place. What else you got to have? The right kind of star. 
You think just any old star will do, class? No, not at all. You've got to have a very special star. So I've, I've got some little blow-ups here. This is our sun compared to our planets. But what you need to know is our sun compared to other stars is more like this. Here's our sun. There's Sirius, the dog star. There's Pollux. There's Arcturus. Sun not very big relative to that. But that's not the end of the story. You look, keep your eyes up here. What about Betelgeuse and Antares? And where's the sun? Right there. I'm up here at the screen and I can't see it. It's a size of one pixel compared to Betelgeuse and Antares. Class, did you know that there's a whole spectrum of stars from little tiny dwarf stars all the way up to Antares? And our sun is almost smack dab in the middle. So we have the just right star. Well, isn't that a good coincidence? That we have just the right star to support life on a planet in its planetary system. Nobody argues about this. But folks, it isn't just the size of the sun. It has all kinds of properties that make it the best. And I'm not talking about all those, but believe me, out of those 180, there's a bunch of more factors of the sun which have to be within a very narrow range. They have to be... Exactly. And they are. Well, isn't that interesting? Coincidence. That we just happen to be with the exact kind of star we need. Then you have to have the planet. And did you know there's a bunch of looking for planets going on? You probably see articles in your paper like we do about exoplanets all the time these days. They're thinking, we found another planet. The one they found is probably about the size of Jupiter or bigger. You think there's any life on Jupiter? Folks, the planet not only has to be located properly, it has to be the right size. These big guys, Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune, there's no way. Are we sending spaceships to Jupiter to look for life? No, it would be foolishness. We know there's no life there. Where are we sending? Mars. Well, why Mars? Look, here's Earth. The closest size to us is what? What's that one right there? The closest size to Earth. Anybody know? Venus. Why aren't we sending them to Venus? Because it is a messed up planet. That's why. <laughs> Kids, do you all know anything about Venus? Probably not. It rotates backwards in the first place. It's unorthodox. And its atmosphere is mostly sulfuric acid. Have you spilled a sulfuric acid on yourself in lab? It'll burn the fire out of you. Not very supportive of living things. Nobody thinks there's life on Venus. It's messed up. So the next best is Mars, and we're looking. They're trying to find some teeny possible chance of some water might have been there sometime. Our Earth is covered with 70% water. You are about 60% water, you waterhead. <laughs> and if you weren't, you wouldn't be here. Well, there's more to be said about that. But I will tell you, there are only three of our planets that are in the habitable zone, and our Earth happens to be... 
plus it's the right size, and 68 other things. So it's got a proper mass, spin, tilt, moon. Folks, we ought to spend the next two weeks on the moon. No, talking about the moon. How many moons do we have? One. Do you know how many moons Pluto has, class? More than one. <laughs> All right, just for fun, no fair looking. Now that's your homework assignment tonight. How many moons does Pluto have, the smallest planet? It's got us whooped. Well, that's a good question. Depends on whether you're a Plutoist or not. But there's a whole lot of properties. Look, if our moon wasn't as big as it is, placed right where it is, revolving the way it does, and with a certain set of characteristics, you wouldn't be here. Period. Our moon is <laughs> for the life support here. Well, let's go back. Can you back me up one more again? I meant to say that here, properties of biochemicals, that's tomorrow, and the molecular machines and the cells and genetic code, that's tomorrow. We're going to do a lot of it. But all of them have to be... That's right. Isn't that a coincidence? And then here's the one-cell organism, which in Darwin's day they thought was a glob of just stuff. And we know now it's a veritable factory of all kinds of incredible things. And it's down at the nanometer size. I have a chart up here for you to look at. Frog eggs are about one millimeter long. You can see them with the naked eye. Paramecium, you can see uh, pretty well, but with a, certainly with an optical microscope. And a biological cell you can see with a microscope. But we're talking down here in the size of atoms and DNA and antibodies. These are in the le level of nanometers. So class, a nanometer. Here's a meter. Divide this meter into one billion equal parts. One of those parts is a nanometer. You can't even see it. But our scientists are now able to study nanometer stuff. Even to the point of trying to build machines at the nano level. Trying to imitate what God has already done. So, this is just to show you how small a nanometer is. It's one billionth of a meter. And a picometer is one trillionth. The meter. That's the kind of stuff we're dealing with nowadays. Kids, there are po folks who spend their life as nano engineers. They're spending their life dealing with stuff so small you can't even see it except with certain special devices. Incredible. So I'm closing my talk this evening by introducing you to a world famous nano engineer. His name is James Tour. James Tour is a Messianic Jew. I tell you that to tell you there are modern-day scientists who are world-renowned, who are believers. James Tour is a Jew who's come to believe Jesus the Christ was truly the Messiah the Jews were waiting on all these years. And if you go to his website, he openly declares, if you want to become a believer in Jesus, 
you study the resurrection because it's overwhelmingly evidence for Messiah. I love that. But he's an engineer par excellence. And if I had time, I could tell you about some of his patents and discoveries. The man is incredible. He works at Rice University. Done a lot of health-related things. But in the course of all of that, he's developed a team that is world-renowned. And they decided after making a bunch of other things at the nano level, they'll build a car at the nano level because that's fun. And so they did. And so you see a car's got all different parts to it, right? Axle bearing, suspension, wheels, fuel, motor. So here's a picture of a car made out of one large molecule. You see it's got four wheels. It's got axles. It's got a motor system right here. This is the thing that turns around and drives it. And it's got all these different parts, but they're all part of an organic molecule. It's one giant molecule, and it's a car class. Pretty amazing. And if you're going to have a car, you want to ride it somewhere, don't you? Well, these guys ride on gold foil or silver foil. And so you can see it here. He's riding along. You can make this thing move. Here's a picture of the motion. See him moving along here? They can make a move. Well, folks, if you got a car, what have you got to do? you got to have a race. Don't you? Of course you do. So this was one of his cars, and he entered it in the first international nano car race. <laughs> April 28th and 29th, 2017 in Toulouse, France. And there's a whole story behind that, but you can see that entered into that race were a team from Austria, U.S., University of Graz and Rice. This is his team. France, Germany, Japan, Switzerland, and another Ohio University team. Six teams competing in the first ever nano car race. You can't even see them. And they're running around on foils. By the way, in different places. They're not even at the same place, but they time them. You want to read something fun, go read about how they do that. Well, I'm happy to tell you, class, that Austria-U.S. team won the whole thing. 150 nanometers in one and a half hours. <laughs> you remember what I told you a nanometer is? One billionth of a meter, that moved 150 of those in an hour and a half. That's whipping along. <laughs> Folks, relative to their size, that's faster than a cheetah. That's amazing. Switzerland was second at 133 nanometers in six and a half hours, and everybody else gave up. This is hard. Hard stuff. So here's a picture of the first generation car they made. Here it sits right here. And I'm not going to ask you to do the chemistry here, but look. You see the four wheels, and this is the axles, and this is the, the thing that is the motor, and it's this thing that turns around. And this first generation that they made went one, this turning turned at a 1.8 revolutions per hour. That is slower than molasses. It took them an hour to go one and a half rotations. That car got nowhere, kind of like the, all the other guys that lost. So they went back to the drawing board and built a whole new one. And here's the second generation one. 
Now, if you look at this closely, these two wheels and those two, well, they're identical. So are these. The axles are the same. This is the same. There's only one difference between this one and that one. You see that S right there? That's a sulfur atom occupying the six-ring chain. Over here is a five-ring chain. They took out the sulfur. This one went three million revolutions per second. That's why they won. I want you to get this, class. To build that second-generation car, they didn't just go in and take out the sulfur. They started over and built it again, doing all kinds of other tests to see, how can I make this thing better? It ended up that what they needed to do was take that one sulfur out. Do you think they knew that when they started? No. It took a whole bunch of work and intelligence to finally produce the second generation. But they won. Here are some comments from Dr. Tour. The nano cars built by the Rice University team were much smaller and far less complex than the kinesin and dynein walkers and other molecular machines common in every living cell. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Don't you miss it. Dr. Tour is a world-famous nano-engineer. He's built stuff at that level. The Rice team has been working on nano cars for over 20 years. Every molecular machine in living cells is much larger, at least 10,000 times larger, much more complex, and much more sophisticated than the thing they took 20 years to build. And here's a taste of how much work slash intelligence it took to produce the nano cars. So I want your eyes up here. Don't you miss this. When he won that race in April of 2017, all the losers said, are you going to publish? He said, I've been planning all along. So within a month, he had published an article explaining how they did it. And I want to show you a page. I'll give you a minute to read. <laughs> That's one page of information on how they went about ultimately getting a nano car that won. Here's page two. Are you finished? You don't know tops or bottom what that's talking about. And neither did the experts. But that's what it took. And here's the article. came out in Tetrahedron Magazine. And the date on it here is the 17th of May, 2017. That's one month after they won that race. And by the way, do you see this? It was 281 pages long. I showed you two of them. How about some nighttime reading? You go get that article and see if you can figure out one thing in it. And Tour himself said, what I have done is nothing compared to what we see in living things all the time. 
That's what he constructed. It rolls around on foil and wins stupid little races. But may to his benefit, may I tell you that one thing he's trying to do now is take those little cars and recondition them and work them with a spike on the front so they can attack cancer cells. Boom! Specific cancer cells for specific diseases. He wants to make a medical application. I love this man because he's out to serve humanity, which is what Christianity is all about too. We know that nanocars were designed by intelligent human engineers. Would you all agree with that? And to do it, everything when they finally got it all together had to be? Exactly. And it took a lot of work. Nature doesn't do that by itself. Living cells with all of their thousands of nanomachines which are far more intricate, complex, interdependent, and full of digital information were surely designed by God. Amen. Why isn't that reasonable? Can Christianity and science coincide? The Bible teaches that things were made, that were made, were caused, they cause us to see God. Romans 1. Science says everywhere you look from the macroscopic to the microscopic, things look like they've been made. Everywhere we look, be he says, you see design. What should that say to you? There's a designer. How much does it take, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to convince you somebody messed with this? This didn't happen by itself. Is it reasonable to believe in God in this scientific age? I want to tell you it's more reasonable than it's ever been in the history of mankind and somebody's going to be an answer to God for not seeing it. And that's the lesson for tonight.